Also, um, THC is is fairly good at disrupting REM cycles and sleep, which uh, normally might not be a good thing for most people. But for someone with PTSD, that might be um, having night terrors, um, very invasive dreams. Um, that can actually make sleep more bearable. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. And with me today from Oregon is Jason Wilson. Hi, Jason. Hey, Nathan. Thanks for joining me. So today we're going to look at the endocannabinoid system, but also take a deep dive into uh, medical cannabis. It's a hot topic here in Australia, like it has been and continues to be in uh, the US and Canada. Um, and I've been listening to your fabulous podcast called Curious About Cannabis, and I thought who better to get uh, the host. So the tables are turned a bit for you today. So um, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> let's see how you go. Um, so, before we dive into medical cannabis, um, can you tell us a bit about your background and what what motivated you to put all this content and follow medical cannabis so closely? Sure, yeah. Um, first of all, thanks so much for reaching out and and connecting and inviting me. I'm always excited to have a chance to kind of sit on the the other side of the table, so to speak. And um, so this is really fun for me. Um, my background. Um, it's a little bit unusual in a sense. So um, I grew up in Mississippi, the state of Mississippi in the United States, um, which is, uh, as many people know, a very um, conservative place. Um, and as far as cannabis and anything like that goes, very, um, you know, kind of abstinence and prohibitionist, you know, kind of mindset um, to that. So I didn't um, grow up around um, cannabis or have a whole lot of exposure to it until um, really college. Um, but what was interesting is I did my undergraduate work at the University of Mississippi, and I knew at the time that I was there that there was a cannabis lab um, that was federally sanctioned by the United States government. And I found that fascinating that there was this lab on campus that was working with, you know, this sort of taboo plant. And, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there was this, this weird um, discordance because I had friends that had, um, you know, by that time gotten in trouble for, you know, their dealings with cannabis and that sort of thing, uh, friends that had been arrested and everything. And then meanwhile, um, there's this federally sanctioned cannabis lab at my school. And so um, sort of serendipitously, I was um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, as many are want to do around that age, you know, my, you know, basically 20 years old, 21. And um, I ended up having the opportunity to visit that lab and to um, do some work there. So I was working for the IT department for the University of Mississippi at the time. And um, 
that gave me access to a lot of places that um, a lot of people didn't get to go to. And so I found myself um, taking some jobs, working on some of the analytical instruments that were in the cannabis research and development lab. And so I, you know, got to kind of poke around and got some tours, got to know some of the researchers there and learn what they were doing and ended up kind of being a um, kind of go-to IT technician for that lab um, while I was there. And so I ended up spending quite a bit of time there as well as the um, pretty much the largest natural products research center in the United States is also located um, at the University of Mississippi. Oh, interesting. And so I also got to spend a lot of time there as well. And I already had interest in biology and chemistry, um, but just couldn't quite figure out what to do with that interest. Um, but because I had that interest, that's kind of what made me want to sort of make sure that I was the person that, you know, went to these labs and uh, fixed their computers and fixed their analytical equipment and everything. And um, those experiences really um, made an impression on me as I, uh, you know, learned about natural products research and, um, you know, just these these fascinating ideas that were floating around about the chemicals that were in not just cannabis, but all sorts of plants and, you know, what that might mean for human health and drug development and, and all that sort of thing. So, you know, as I got that experience, I eventually decided, well, I want to steer my path in that direction somehow. And I didn't really know what that would look like, but I spent um, a couple of years after that point um, studying biology and chemistry primarily and just preparing for grad school. And um, so eventually I decided to move somewhere where I could interact with the cannabis plant um, without worrying about legal issues. So um, I ended up doing my graduate schooling in Oregon. And uh, during that time, um, I was studying at the school I went to had this very interesting degree where it was basically a split master's of science degree, where you spent half your time studying what essentially would be a master's level biology degree program. And then also, uh, you learn how to teach. So it's kind of a split masters of teaching and biology masters combined, which I thought was really fascinating because I also have a passion for sharing um, and teaching and, and that sort of thing. So uh, while I was doing that, I ended up working for the federal government as a botanist for a little while, um, doing some some work in, in a lab for the Bureau of Land Management. And then as I after I graduated, I ended up finding a natural products lab that was interested in pursuing cannabis research. And um, they also were kind of forward thinking in that they knew that at some point cannabis testing was going to be a really big deal. And at that point, Oregon had not legalized cannabis yet, but there was a medical cannabis program. So uh, but there weren't really any strict rules on the quality of cannabis or anything like that. So their cannabis testing wasn't something that was required. Um, so I I was intrigued by this opportunity to come into this lab and essentially build things from the ground up and to build something similar to 
what I had seen and experienced when I was in Mississippi. And so, of course, I jumped at that opportunity and spent several years, um, you know, help working with my mentor and building up that lab and developing uh, methods to try to analyze the chemical constituents of cannabis and to look at things like um, microbiological contaminants and pesticides and all that sort of thing. And then, um, you know, so that was really my entry point to really, you know, getting serious about cannabis research. And, um, and then as I was working in that lab, you know, I always had this passion for teaching. So I wanted to figure out how to connect with the, our immediate surrounding community and, and how to start doing seminars and lectures and stuff. So I reached out to my alma mater, um, Southern Oregon University, and, you know, just was basically like, I want to just book a room um, once a month, pretty much every month for about nine months straight every year and give natural product science seminars. And they were like, great, that sounds good. And so I was really excited about that. And so I ended up developing this seminar series that ran for three years um, where we just, uh, I'd bring in guests and I would teach. And um, and so that's kind of where the cannabis education stuff really started to get nourished. And then that led to um, my building a workshop because I wanted to, at the time, there were absolutely no college courses on cannabis science or cannabinoid science in the United States. And so I wanted to build, um, you know, a college level course that I would enjoy taking if I had the opportunity. And so I started teaching these uh, cannabis science workshop series that would run. It was a two part series and each part ran for about four to six weeks, um, fairly intensive with you know, the works, I mean, there were, there was homework, we had final exams, everything you would expect from a college class. And um, while I was doing that workshop, I was like, well, um, I need a textbook. So um, I started looking around and there were tons of really awesome books that I loved that were written by really talented scientists about cannabis and cannabinoid science. But um, my students um, you know, they didn't have backgrounds in biology and chemistry, um, or even medical science. And so the textbooks that were out there were really inaccessible to my students that I was teaching. And so that led to me starting to kind of jot down some notes and write up some handouts that evolved into a workbook that evolved into, uh, eventually the first edition of the Curious About Cannabis book. And then now this year, we just published the second edition of that book, which um, is quite a bit bigger, more robust. And um, and then that kind of spiraled out. And then I was like, well, it'd be great to, you know, capture some of the conversations I'm having with other scientists and researchers and doctors and things and start really, um, you know, sharing that with people. And so then the idea for the Curious About Cannabis podcast came along. And uh, so then I started doing that and things have just sort of naturally progressed from there. And um, all the while that I was doing all of that, I was working in labs. I was, you know, working on method development if, as far as, you know, once again, trying to develop analytical methods for 
measuring chemicals in, in cannabis. And also one thing that I'm very passionate about is quality management and quality control. So thinking about how to just um, improve the quality of cannabis and cannabinoid products, how to work with producers to, you know, kind of standardize things a little bit better. Um, I ended up doing some work helping some companies build out their own sort of in-house quality control testing labs. Um, and just all of this stuff just kind of spiraled. And um, now here we are and I'm doing, you know, consulting, still working with labs and then also um, doing some teaching. I'm teaching a cannabinoid science course for a, um, a small online college called John Patrick University uh, starting next semester. So I'm really excited about that. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of in a nutshell. Um, you know, there's a lot more pieces to it, but um, on a high level, that's kind of where I came from and where I'm at now. Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, amazing. A lot of science uh, stories in science start with serendipity, but obviously a lot of uh, passion and and, um, and hard work there. Uh, so yeah, and yeah, one of the reasons I did invite you on is because of that um, communication background, that ability to teach all these um, complex and technical concepts, and also be objective about it all about the, the cannabinoid science. So first off, we might um, just to quickly explore. We're going to look at the, obviously the, the phytocannabinoids, but we do obviously possess our own endogenous cannabinoids, and um, we touched upon this with Professor Pumielli. But I wouldn't mind just going back over again, perhaps getting your sort of. Uh, I think you mentioned or a guest mentioned in your podcast it's been sort of hiding in plain sight all this time, the endocannabinoid system. So can you give your sort of overview on, on what the system is, what it does, and what maybe some of the key players to put it into context? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, to to understand kind of the more modern conception of the endocannabinoid system, it's it's kind of good to get some context on how, I don't know, some of the major scientific discoveries that, yeah. that have led to all of this. So, I mean, you know, we can kind of trace modern cannabis and cannabinoid science back to, you know, roughly the mid 1800s or so. Um, there was a researcher, you know, uh, O'Shaughnessy who had, visited India and seen how cannabis was being used for medicinal purposes and carried that back up to the UK and uh, started doing some interesting controlled research with dogs and, and other animals to try to, you know, tease out why we see um, cannabis being used in all these ethnobotanical ways. And largely that's kind of where things kind of began. And in the late very late 1800s, um, we have the first cannabinoid that was um, um, characterized out of cannabis um, as a, a form of cannabinol. And then um, kind of jump forward a few decades and get into the 1920s, 1930s, and um, analytical technologies are starting to get a little more refined. Um, chemistry distillation methods are getting better chromatography is is starting to become a thing, which for anyone listening, if you're not familiar with what chromatography is, it's just um, often it's just called separation science now, but it literally translates to color writing, which um, I rather enjoy because um, sometimes you can see um, as uh, the 
molecules that are in a complex mixture as they separate out, um, they fluoresce differently. And so literally you see patterns of colors depending on how you're measuring these things. Um, so you've, you've got these analytical technologies that sort of catch up with the times. And so in the 1920s or 30s is when you start to see reports of uh, cannabinol and cannabidiol. And there's actually a controversy around cannabinol and its discovery. Um, there's actually quite a few chemists now that believe that what was originally um, talked about as CBN or cannabinol was actually THC. If you look at um, some of the distillation parameters that were used to try to, you know, isolate these fractions out of cannabis extracts and stuff, it a lot of that tends to line up with THC more than CBN. And so um, there's speculation that that perhaps all those old references to CBN were actually THC that had just been kind of um, degraded or chemically altered through the distillation process. Um, but so the 1930s, you start to get these reports of, you know, cannabinoids and this concept of cannabinoids really starts to, um, you know, solidify um, in sort of the scientific um, lexicon, if you will. Um, and to give it some more historical context, keep in mind that up until this point, um, can, at least in the United States, mm -hmm. cannabis was still part of the pharmacopoeia. Um, mm -hmm. And so some of, a lot of this research was not only trying to understand how cannabis is intoxicating, which is kind of what a lot of the focus tends to to hinge on when we talk about the history of cannabis science, but it was also, you know, just still taking from the work of O'Shaughnessy, trying to understand why, uh, you know, what components of cannabis might be um, contributing to um, medical benefits. Um, but then, you know, in the late 1930s, um, cannabis prohibition really starts to take off in the United States um, in 1942. You know, there's a new issue of the pharmacopoeia that leaves cannabis um, absent from that. And then we kind of enter this um, temporary sort of black hole <laughs> of cannabis research. And then just like in the late 1800s and early 1900s, where these um, chemistry techniques uh, kind of caught up with the times, in the late 1950s, we see the same thing. Um, there are new instruments that um, are built that allow um, chemists to understand the um, components of a molecule and the geometry and everything in, in ways they'd never been able to see before. So this is, I think it's, yeah, in the late 1950s, um, a company called Varian um, produces the first um, commercially available um, NMR machine, which stands for Nuclear Magnetic Resonance. And and in the early 1960s, uh, we start to see researchers trying to use NMR to characterize the compounds in cannabis. And particularly, um, you know, there were groups in Israel, primarily Raphael Meshulam, which a lot of people listening, if they're familiar with cannabis science, they've probably heard that name before. He's now dubbed the, <laughs> the godfather of cannabinoid science. But um, his research groups... Um, we're applying NMR to cannabis extracts, to hash and other things, to try to understand what's going on. And in 1963, they re-isolated CBD, which had been isolated before in 1930. And 
they were able to characterize that molecule in a way that had never been done before. And, you know, of course, they wanted to see, um, is this compound responsible for the intoxicating effects of cannabis? And they found out it wasn't, so they kept searching. And a year later, they um, isolated THC. Um, and they weren't the, the first to isolate THC, but they were the first to give THC to dogs and learn that THC is the intoxicating component of cannabis, uh, which was a really big deal to finally understand, yeah. you know, that, okay, we've honed in on one molecule that seems to be uh, slowing these dogs down. And, you know, they exhibit some signs of, you know, a little bit of confusion and stuff. So then they start really pulling things apart and trying to understand, you know, is THC the only molecule doing this or are there more? And for the most part, they found that it's really just THC and, and THC's isomers. You know, there's like Delta-8 THC and others, um, but all of those compounds were in such trace concentrations that they were largely kind of put to the side and THC became, you know, the the star of, of cannabis, so to speak. And that discovery, you know, then led people to wonder, well, what is THC doing in the body? How is it eliciting these effects? And that's where the story gets really interesting because, you know, today it's kind of common knowledge that we have cannabinoid receptors in the body and, you know, that cannabinoids tend to interact with these receptors. But, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, um, it wasn't even necessarily presumed that there would be a receptor in the body that THC interacts with. There were speculations that maybe um, THC kind of acts as a solvent on cellular membranes and changes, um, you know, dynamics um, on the on cellular membranes as well as membranes of organelles and that sort of thing. And maybe it doesn't need a chemical receptor to elicit its effects, um, which is fairly interesting looking back on on that. But um, you sort of fast forward a couple of decades to the 1980s and, you know, it's sort of a, a funny story because the cannabis industry, especially out here in the United States and especially out here on the West Coast where I am, um, there's a big, a big kind of, um, I don't know, kind of battle between um, herbal medicine communities and sort of the conventional Western medicine pharmaceutical approach. And um, what a lot of people don't realize is that we can probably chalk a lot of our modern conception of the endocannabinoid system up to uh, something that Pfizer did. So Pfizer being the, you know, drug development company they are, um, once, you know, they were watching all of this research happen around cannabis and the chemical constituents um, that were affecting people. And they started to develop synthetic cannabinoids to try to create tools to research what's going on, as well as to then um, help them understand how to develop more targeted cannabinoid-based drugs. Um, but funny enough, they they created this synthetic cannabinoid that they ended up not doing anything with. Um, and they ended up just giving it away to uh, researchers. Um, and that synthetic cannabinoid, um, there's a researcher named Lynn Howlett that took that synthetic cannabinoid and 
did some, um, you know, radio assisted ligand binding assays and um, ended up figuring out that, wait a minute, actually, um, this synthetic cannabinoid is directly agonizing something um, in these um, these tissues that they were working with. And so that led them to dive deeper and deeper and try to isolate fractions of these tissues that they're working with, try to figure out what proteins, you know, um, this synthetic cannabinoid might be interacting with. And they honed in on one particular protein that they first dubbed Howlett's receptor that now we know of as the CB1 receptor. Um, And that was, as you can imagine, a huge discovery. Um, And I believe that was published in 1988. um, And they had discovered it, you know, a little bit before that, but, um, and then shortly after that, once they understood, um, the basic structure of the CB1 receptor and the amino acids that were involved in, um, building that protein, well, then they could look at genes and try to find things that are similar. And that's how they discovered the CB2 receptor. And they ended up cloning it and testing it. And sure enough, THC agonized that as well. And the uh, some of these synthetic cannabinoids, and by this point, there are even more synthetic cannabinoids to play with. Um, they ended up, you know, kind of piecing that picture together. And then once you find CB1 and CB2 receptors, well, then the question is, well, why does the body make these receptors? Um, it is probably not because we've evolved to consume cannabis, Um that hasn't been the case for anything else. So it, it would be weird for that to be the case here. So probably there's um, some endogenous compound or multiple endogenous compounds that interact with this receptor. Um, and so for a while, CB1 and CB2 receptors were what's considered as orphaned. Uh, we didn't know what endogenous uh, you know, chemicals produced by the body interact with them. Um, and so they're quote unquote orphans. Um, but that didn't last very long. Um, in the early 90s, um, researchers were, they chose to look at tissues from pigs because, you know, the presumption that pigs are anatomically very similar to humans on a certain level. And so they took pig brains and essentially um, uh, fractionated these. It sounds kind of funny to to describe and maybe a little gross to some people, but uh, they took these pig brains and fractionated them and exposed them to, uh, you know, clones of, of these receptors. And they found that sure enough, there was a fraction of these pig brains that uh, seemed to interact with um, uh, primarily the CB1 receptor. And so they once again start kind of looking at these fractions and honing in on on what's going on. And and that was particularly challenging because what they discovered is that when they tried to isolate what they thought was the molecule that was doing most of that work, uh, that molecule ended up being very, um, very sensitive. Um, it, it, uh, it just, it would change very quickly um, when it wasn't in its matrix, when it wasn't, you know, <laughs> um, in, in the fluids around the brain and everything. And so, they were sort of stumped of like they, when they were exposing these fractions of pig brains to these receptors, they were seeing activity. But then when they started to isolate things, they couldn't recreate that activity. And they later realized um, 
you know, that they had this degradation problem on their hands. They corrected for that and then discovered what would um, become known as anandamide, uh, the first uh, discovered endogenous cannabinoid. Um, and then after that, very shortly after that, um, 2-arachidonyl glycerol or 2-AG was discovered in um, some tissues of pig intestines, actually. And so then we have, you know, we're starting to build what a lot of people consider to be the endocannabinoid system. We've got cannabinoid receptors, we've got endogenous cannabinoids, and then the next step was what enzymes are involved in building these things and breaking them down, as well as what genes are responsible for, um, you know, coordinating the production of those enzymes and, and all of that. And so it didn't take very long because by this point, there was already some pretty good research on fatty acids and fatty acid derivatives. And so once researchers kind of understood what they were working with, that um, anandamide and 2-AG were these derivatives of uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids, um, they were able to hunt down those enzymes very quickly and, and you know, discovered that fatty acid amide hydrolase is one of the main um, degradation enzymes of anandamide. And then you have MAGL, um, you know, maybe make sure I don't mess this up, monoacylglycerol lipase. Um, that was the primary degradation enzyme for 2-AG, even though there are many others. Um, but those are sort of the, the main players. And then in the late 90s, um, I believe it was 1998, um, a group of researchers published a paper where for the generally for the first time this phrase the endocannabinoid system was presented and defined um you know basically consolidating all of this research that had happened from really you know the 1930s and 1800s all the way um to the 1990s so well over a hundred years worth of research and and really condensed it down into the endocannabinoid system. And um, from there, things just continued to evolve because in the 2000s, um, we started to see more research with cannabidiol. You know, interest started to wane on THC and other cannabinoids started, phytocannabinoids started to, you know, kind of get the attention of researchers and as researchers started to piece apart the activity of cannabidiol, they realized, um, okay, this, this basic concept of the ECS is insufficient to explain what CBD is doing in the body because CBD doesn't actually have much affinity for cannabinoid receptors. So it, you know, it kind of leaves people a little puzzled, like, okay, we've got this, you know, one of the most dominant phytocannabinoids in nature that doesn't interact with cannabinoid receptors much at all. So what do we do with that? Um, and this led to, you know, discoveries that, that CBD interacts with um, vanilloid receptors and nuclear receptors and serotonin receptors and modulates the reuptake of adenosine, um, all these different things that it, it affects um, enzymes that normally would be responsible for breaking down endocannabinoids and, so that means that CBD indirectly modulates um, endocannabinoid activity. And through that, as well as, and, and we'll come back around to this, but as that combined with research that was going on around the entourage effect, which I, I didn't really talk about too much um, up until now, 
Uh, that led to a refined concept in the 2010s of this thing called the endocannabinoid dome, this bigger, more complex system that includes not just um, endocannabinoids, but things that are similar to endocannabinoids, but maybe don't have affinity for cannabinoid receptors, but do have affinity for vanilloid and nuclear receptors, that sort of thing. So these endocannabinoid congeners, as they're called, that act in some ways similar to CBD. Um, and then, you know, you've got those, their receptor targets, you've got the miscellaneous enzymes involved in not just the endocannabinoids, but also these endocannabinoid like compounds. And it just really expands to where you've, you're now talking about a system that has hundreds of ligands and uh, dozens upon dozens of receptor targets and, and a whole host of enzymes that are involved in interconnected biosynthetic pathways. And that's kind of where we're at now. I mean, today there are, you know, uh, quite a few quote unquote novel endocannabinoids that have been discovered um, beyond anandamide and 2-AG. There's nolid and ether. There's um, so anandamide is in arachidonyl ethanolamine. Uh, there's also an endocannabinoid that's at least been found in rats called O-arachidonyl ethanolamine, which is uh, colloquially usually referred to as verotamine. Um, and then there's also an endocannabinoid called N-arachidonyl dopamine. Um, and that's just a few, um, but the, the list of endocannabinoids is expanding. And um, the list of endocannabinoid congeners, which... Um, you did a, a great episode with Dr. Piamelli about um, PEA, and I think you talked about OEA as well. Yeah. But um, these other, um, you know, acylethanolamines um, that really hadn't necessarily gotten a lot of attention in the context of the endocannabinoid system. Well, now, as we're starting to look at other fatty acid-derived compounds, we realize that PEA and OEA are congeners of endocannabinoids and and affect their activity in different ways and so it's just it's really just spiraling into this really big really complex thing that touches everything and um i did a great interview with dr vincenzo de marzo where we we talk about his career trying to piece together this thing that he you know is now calling the endocannabinoid dome and he pointed out that even the endocannabinoid dome is not a big enough concept to encompass the activities of um, a lot of cannabinoids. And, and it's because of this interconnected web of, of systems in life. It's just the way things are. You know, the endocannabinoid dome affects the human genome. It affects the metabolome, the proteome, and, all, and the gut microbiome. All of these things um, can't be separated from each other. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's been a, a very... A wild ride uh, from a researcher's perspective, and um, you know that's kind of where we've been, and and uh, a little look at at where we're at right now. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> so many questions there, and it's a fantastic <laughs> overview of the last uh, hundred years or so of um, science and medicine. Um, so back to the endocannabinoid diome um it's obviously very broad and vast and i think you interviewed is it dr ethan russo who has yeah. this idea of the, i'm just trying to translate this to sort of clinical practice like I, I can't really see at the moment like well is there um defined deficiencies or imbalances that we know of in disease states i suppose it's sort of like depression we don't measure you know serotonin levels in the blood or 
urinary given SSRI, um, we prescribe on sort of signs and symptoms, et cetera. What's your sort of take on the, the idea of an, being able to sort of recognise an endo um, cannabinoid deficiency, thus then supplementing, you know, um, phytocannabinoids for that? Yeah, it's it's the example you gave is is a really good one um, with with serotonin. Um, so the first thing to point out is exactly what you you alluded to. There's a measurement problem. Um, it's it's very hard to measure. Um, well, a lot a lot of signaling compounds in the body, but endocannabinoids. Um, and the sort of broader class of compounds that they belong to called icosanoids, um, they're very hard to measure because they're generally produced on demand and locally. So the body produces them when it needs them and it produces them where it needs them. Um, typically, the building blocks of these things are breaking off of, you know, lipid components of cellular membranes and stuff like that so that it's a very targeted action it all happens very quickly. Things are broken down very quickly. So um, that creates an issue. How do you characterize someone's endocannabinoid system and their endocannabinoid activity? And um, there aren't a lot of good ways. The classical ways to do it is you can do a spinal tap and you can take a look at, you know, cerebral spinal fluid and stuff and try to see um, if you can you know, measure anything there, but even then it's kind of like, well, um, is that just what's happening now? How indicative is, of, is what you measure there? Um, you know, how does that apply to, um, the future? Um, and then the other way of measuring them is to do biopsies on tissues. And, and obviously that's not ideal because, um, <laughs> you're, you're using your organs. And so it's generally not a good idea to go scoop out, um, bits of them to try to measure endocannabinoids. So, uh, yeah, we have this measurement problem. Um, so first of all, there's that to contend with. Um, second, the concept of, um, endocannabinoid system derangements, you know, it's a fairly new concept. Um, Ethan Rousseau has a, a pretty popular paper, um, that came out in the two thousands and then a follow-up in the 2010s that kind of revisited this concept that he proposed of uh, clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. And that concept has really taken off in that it's, it's easy to understand, um, you know, this idea that if you're deficient in endocannabinoids and you supplement with phytocannabinoids and you see benefit or progress, then, um, you know, everything, everything seems to, to gel pretty easily. But um, as far as actual evidence for clinical endocannabinoid deficiency, it's, it is primarily related to clinical outcomes that people see when they introduce phytocannabinoids in a certain disease state. Um, but that's very tricky. It's, it's, it's very hard to determine whether you're seeing benefit from these phytocannabinoids because there was an endocannabinoid deficiency or maybe there's something else. I mean, um, there's, there's so much complex activity going on, um, that, and, and because we really can't measure these things, um, it's, it's still very speculative. Um, that being said, of course, um, 
a lot of clinicians are are seeing very remarkable outcomes. Um, you know, by introducing phytocannabinoids in patients with um, particular um, conditions and diseases, but yeah, I think it's still too early to really make any hard claims over whether, um, you know, that's because of some endocannabinoid deficiency. You know, there's also the flip side, um, you know, overactive endocannabinoid systems really don't get a lot of attention, but that's, that's also an issue. And so I like to say, you know, all of this falls into endocannabinoid system derangements. Um, is it, you know, maybe your body's not, um, not forming cannabinoid receptors the right way, or those receptors can also sometimes be misshapen. And so your endocannabinoids can't really interact with them the right way. And sometimes that can be tied to um, genetic problems. Um, uh, you could also have issues with the production of endocannabinoids that could be related to uh, problems with enzymes. It could also be related to, you know, if your body is really bad at absorbing polyunsaturated fatty acids from your diet, well, then you're not going to have adequate precursors for your body to make mm -hmm. all of these fatty acid uh, derivatives. Um, and not, not just endocannabinoids, but like I said, um, eicosanoids in general, um, which for anyone listening is not familiar with eicosanoids, um, you know, eicosanoids are generally derived from arachidonic acid, which is derived from linoleic acid primarily, uh, which is your omega-6 fatty acid, uh, or the most common one. Um, and so there's just a lot going on. And so I think that the, uh, the concept of endocannabinoid system derangements, of course, that is legitimate, um, but it's extremely hard to measure. And I always worry, you know, our brains have this profound desire to oversimplify things and, you know, to make them digestible, which is sort of a, a survival adaptation on many levels. Um, but I generally try to encourage people to resist that um, desire to really simplify all of these things down to, you know, oh, you just have a, you have fibromyalgia or irritable bowel or something. And so you, you have an endocannabinoid deficiency and you just need phytocannabinoids to supplement that deficiency. Um, there can be a lot going on and you can have, you know, a, a single medical condition can be caused by a variety of different underlying, um, you know, physiological dynamics. Um, and so it's, you know, even if endocannabinoid deficiency is at play in things like fibromyalgia or IBS or migraine or something, um, it may not be in, at play for all manifestations of those things. Um, because diagnoses, these are terms we use to categorize, um, you know, symptoms and things. But generally, um, as we learn time and time again, these are often spectrum disorders and, um, you know, they just present very, very similar symptoms. So that's kind of my rambling roundabout way of, of saying um, there's not a lot of solid evidence for endocannabinoid uh, deficiency. That doesn't mean it's not a thing. I do think it, it is in, in certain circumstances. Um, and for some of the reasons that I mentioned, there's all sorts of reasons why your endocannabinoid system may not be functioning properly and the signaling and 
production of endocannabinoids could be um, underperforming. Likewise, could be performing too much. Um, in that case, you would expect to see metabolic disease, obesity, um, mm. diabetes, things like that. Um, so it's, I don't know, it's just complicated. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and that's the reason I asked. I think just to highlight that point about how, yeah, we tend to simplify things. And I'm certainly, and I'm certainly, again, no expert in this area, but getting the, the signal there in, in this field and also maybe the, the hype around some of these concepts. So, yeah, I think the more we can explore those and show the nuance and complexity, uh, I think the better. So I want to use that as a bit of a launching point to tackle the next area about this. Um, now we're looking at the, the phytocannabinoids, this idea of the entourage effect that mm. was described, I think, in the 90s and maybe has been sort of misrepresented these days. Um, and this points into the idea of, as you mentioned earlier, the sort of the on one side of the spectrum that the like the herbalist that talks about the the synergy of the plant versus maybe the more more pharmaceutical approach it's just about the active constituents um so can you yeah first of all describe the entourage effect um what it is and what it maybe people interpret it as now and, and your your two cents or ramblings on it sure yeah uh this is something i've i've started to dedicate a lot more energy to to talking about because i i do think it's extremely important especially when we talk about the endocannabinoid dome. So um, when I spoke with uh, Dr. DeMarzo, who was one of the people that originally presented this concept of the entourage effect, um, when I was talking to him, something he brought up that I I had just never quite pieced together in my brain. And then when he said it, it just clicked. And he said, the endocannabinoid dome is a natural evolution of the entourage effect. And it, and it kind of took me a minute to digest that. But then I was like, oh, you're right. And this, this links to what you're um, sort of alluding to of the, where the entourage effect started and how it's been misconstrued. So in the nineties, when the entourage effect was first proposed, it was proposed um, based on some experiments that were going on with endocannabinoids, primarily with 2AG and, you know, DeMarzo and, and his colleagues were noticing that 2AG was, that the, the activity at cannabinoid receptors was different depending on whether 2-AG was exposed to that receptor by itself versus with um, what we now call endocannabinoid congeners. And these compounds that don't have any activity at cannabinoid receptors, but that seemed to be influencing 2-AG's activity at those receptors. And at the time that it was proposed, this was a very mysterious thing. And Raphael Meshulam kind of um, put this idea together and, and sort of joked that it's like politicians that, um, you know, one politician uh, always has their entourage around them that that makes them more important and bigger and more effective than they are, than they are by themselves, um, which uh, kind of stuck with me. But it, it, you know, that's that's how it was originally presented. And it was never at the time that it was proposed, it was not meant to um be extended to the cannabis plant or phytocannabinoids. It was a very specific uh, thing that they were looking at with these endocannabinoids and their congeners. Um, but over time, and I think partially because of some speculative talk, even, you know, potentially by Dr. Mishulam himself, because um, I've had people kind of quote back to me um, some things that that he's even said that made them think that he was referring to the entourage effect in cannabis, but 
um, over time, this entourage effect concept um, kind of got adopted by other researchers um, to describe what essentially we would call herbal synergy. Um, And the way I describe this is like the original intent of the entourage effect was essentially describing a situation where you have um, an actor that has activity at this receptor and in the context of a lot of other compounds that have no um, affinity for that receptor that are influencing its activity. Whereas herbal synergy, um, it's, it's a little, it's much broader than that idea. You know, it's like all of these compounds may have activities of their own. And when they're administered together, they have activities that are greater than the sum of their parts. Um, there's, there's a very subtle difference between those two ideas. And um, as you get into the 2000s, there were some papers published that um, really were chasing down this idea of um, how do the minor constituents of cannabis play into the therapeutic effects. There was research that was showing that um, you know people were responding differently uh, to different varieties of cannabis and the cannabinoids as they were being measured at the time didn't seem to be different. So it was presumed that it must be terpenoids, uh, flavonoids or other chemical constituents that were responsible for those differences in effects. And then you start seeing this term entourage effect, um, being used along another term called the ensemble effect. Um, and you start to hear people talking about, um, Oh, the entourage effect, it's, you know, like a symphony of things. And, um, and, you know, there's a, a number of, um, of papers that, that really point to that. But, um, so then you get into the, like the 2010s and then the cannabis culture and sort of popular culture at large had taken this phrase entourage effect and, made it totally synonymous with the ensemble effect and with herbal synergy and the whole entire um, original meaning of the phrase just kind of got um, buried. Meanwhile, um, some of these researchers, Dr. DeMarzo included, were starting to elucidate the activities of these endocannabinoid congeners. And they started to learn that these compounds were influencing endocannabinoids in different ways, influencing enzymes, interacting with um, other receptor types. And the mystery started to fade as they started to piece together this concept of the endocannabinoid dome. And so this going back to what I said originally, that the um, endocannabinoid dome was a natural evolution of the entourage effect. Um, mm. You know, that's, that's exactly what happened is that they had this mysterious effect. They didn't know what was going on. They called it the entourage effect. And then they, start studying these other fatty acid derivatives and start piecing together this bigger picture and it, and it becomes the endocannabinoid dome, but then sort of parallel in popular culture, you've got this whole other narrative that's developing around this concept of the entourage effect. Um, And that's kind of where we're at now is most people think of the entourage effect or the ensemble effect as this idea that terpenes and other minor cannabinoids and things are, um, influencing the activity of phytocannabinoids to generate unique effects. Um, so it's 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 been messy to tease that out, and um, there's not a lot of good science around um, how those activities may even be at play 
in in the cannabis plant and and when um, cannabis extracts or herbal cannabis is consumed. I mean, just just measuring some of these basic concepts of like what uh, receptor targets these these molecules may have that requires um, a lot of time and energy to to really study and, and understand just in a, a test tube. <laughs> so when you start talking about herbal cannabis that has, you know, over 150 cannabinoids and over 200 terpenoids, much less you start talking about flavonoids and stilbonoids and sterols and all sorts of other things that plants have in them. And you start trying to, you know, understand the pharmacodynamics of all that sort of stuff. It just, it becomes a very, uh, you know, really with the tools we have now, basically an impossible task. And so, that leaves a lot of room for speculation, and um, I'm I'm sure there are interesting synergistic activities happening with cannabis. I mean, it, it's been made apparent that that it is, and there are labs that are discovering that unique um, combinations of cannabinoids are influencing different uh, clinical responses. Um, but the role of of terpenes, particularly, um, has been a little more challenging to hunt down, and something that I've been wondering is whether our assumption that terpenes are involved in, in these synergistic effects somehow, if that is a consequence of the limited number of cannabinoids that we tend to measure. Um, because when you look at someone like uh, Dady Miri in Israel, that's analyzing cannabis products for 140 cannabinoids and 90 terpenoids and, you know, all these other uh, constituents, well, they're, they're seeing some pretty interesting synergistic effects, but localized to cannabinoids. And so it just makes you wonder um, whether we got steered a little off track um, focusing on terpenes when really there might be uh, more going on with minor cannabinoids. Um, but it's hard to say because, you know, like beta caryophylline terpenoid, it's been labeled a dietary cannabinoid and interacts with CB2 receptors. So certainly there's room, uh, particularly for sesquiterpenes, uh, to, you know, maybe interact with cannabinoid receptors and influence other receptor types. But um, it's, that's still a, a, that's a whole other mystery that is really, in my mind, separate, totally separate from what the real entourage effect, um, you know, was, was really, you know, meant to represent. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, you covered a, a few topics there. Um, just quickly then, uh, maybe just to, to flag anyone's, any terpenes you mentioned or other cannabinoids that um, people may come across or there might start to be some some interest in dare I say hype around in the future I think um, oh, yes. CBGs emerging as a, a a hot topic is that being discussed um, yeah absolutely it's uh, becoming a really huge topic here in Oregon um, because um, as hemp farmers are trying to ensure that they remain legal and that their crops um, you know, meet the legal definitions of hemp that their THC levels don't get too high. Um, they're starting. There's starting to be a big shift among farmers to grow uh, CBG dominant crops because, uh, for anyone listening that that may not be familiar, the way the cannabis plant synthesizes cannabinoids, um, if you were to sort of follow the biosynthetic pathway, you get to CBGA uh, before you get to THCA and CBDA, and so. Um, 
before sort of the more modern breeding practices that have produced um, stable CBG dominant um, cannabis varieties, um, you did see mutants every now and then um, in cannabis fields. And researchers had reported on this that sometimes you get plants that either don't have, you know, really any detectable cannabinoids or you get plants that tend to have CBGA, but no THCA, relatively no THCA or CBDA. And that's because, you know, for whatever reason, the enzymatic machinery that would take CBGA and uh, transform it to THCA or or CBDA is not there. Um, And so what that means is when you have a CBGA dominant crop, uh, you're going to have typically much lower THCA levels than you would even with a CBDA dominant crop. So um, there's a a dynamic there that's driving the hype just in that farmers are um, trying to play it safe and they're, they're growing more CBG dominant crops, which is then leading into um, product manufacturers having to prepare for um, that change. And so there's a lot of customer education and outreach and stuff going on around CBG to try to generate consumer interest in that, in that cannabinoid and to try to make it uh you know, I guess the, the next CBD. And, um, so absolutely there's a ton of hype. Um, unfortunately, you know, as complex as, of the, as the activities are of THC and CBD and how much we know about them, we really don't know much about, um, CBG, um, or CBGA. I mean, there's a, a little bit of research that's been done on it. Um, and there's some pretty good review papers. There's a, a paper that came out um, for any clinicians listening. Um, I hope I don't get this wrong, but I think the title is The Potential Medical Uses of Cannabigerol or CBG. And um, that came out just a f- few years ago, I think. Um, and it's a really good um, kind of review for anyone wanting to understand the, you know, kind of what research has been done so far and what the potential medical applications of CBG might be. Um that's a good starting point, but we really don't know a whole lot. And, um, you know, it's just like a lot of other phytocannabinoids, it's fairly non-toxic and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, there's, there's just a lot we need to piece out. We know that CBD has more potent effects on liver enzymes than other phytocannabinoids. And so there's a question of how does CBG fit in that? And, um, does is does it suppress cytochrome P450 enzymes more or less potently than CBD? Well, what about if CBD and CBG are together? You know, it just it it turns into this complicated puzzle that that doctors really want to understand so that they don't possibly, um, you know, one of the, one of the biggest fears is that they don't warn a patient about a contraindication um, when they could and. Um, so yes, CBG, is, there's a lot of hype around that. CBN, cannabinol, there's a lot of hype uh, building around that too, um, because, um, you know, because it's legal in hemp products, it's starting to be a phytocannabinoid that people are formulating with. Um, also, um, Delta-8 THC has become extremely... Uh, the hype around that is, is building very, very quickly. Um, Delta 8 THC is it's one of these cannabinoids that kind of falls into what amounts to a regulatory loophole in that depending on where you are and, and how the term THC is defined, 
if T- if THC is defined as delta nine THC, well then delta eight THC is up for grabs, and delta eight THC is intoxicating, not nearly as much as delta nine THC, but it is. It's um, from some of the research that's been done. It's speculated that you could think of it as like half or two thirds the you know intoxicating potential of, of THC. Um, I've I've tried delta eight THC. I don't I don't know if it you know. I would say it's probably a little less than that, but, um, but it is intoxicating. And, um, what's, what's, uh, what people are excited about with Delta eight THC is that it exhibits a lot of the same activity as Delta nine THC, but just not quite as potent. So a lot of the therapeutic benefits that you see with Delta nine THC, you can generally see some of those same outcomes with Delta eight THC. And there has been some, uh, research on delta eight THC around its um, anti-emetic properties, um, anti-inflammatory properties, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, people are looking to delta eight as possibly this way to use THC medically in a a legal way that has uh, less of a chance of intoxicating them. But, um, y- you know, I, and maybe later on we'll talk about some of the regulatory stuff. But I. I have a strong hunch that eventually the term THC will be defined as all tetrahydrocannabinols. Um, and I think that this little um, loophole will close over the next five or 10 years, um, possibly even sooner. Um, but those are some of the cannabinoids that are really getting hyped about and a couple of others that you don't really see on the market much yet, but um, THCV and CBDV, the uh, what are called the diverinic or, or varin cannabinoids. Um, these are cannabinoids that are very similar to their, uh, more commonly known counterparts. They just have a slightly shorter, uh, carbon chain coming off of the main molecular structure. But other than that, they're, they're the exact same molecule and they've always been in trace concentrations in cannabis plants. And now they're being bred out and there are companies that are genetically modifying cannabis plants. And so we're starting to see, um, there was a patent filed very recently for, um, a CBC dominant, uh, cannabis variety that been, uh, produced through some, some form of genetic modification and, um, and then as well as the, the diverinic cannabinoids. So, I mean, we're just at the beginning of all of this. I mean, people are going to tease out everything they can <laughs> and try to make money off of it. And I'm sure there's some very, uh, great therapeutic potential in a lot of these things too. But, you know, like you're saying, there's, there's also going to be a ton of hype and almost always the reality doesn't match the hype. Yeah. All right. Well, I might um, now focus just on the traditional ones, the THC and the, the CBD here in Australia and New Zealand. Um, with my um, distance sense, it sounds like Australia and New Zealand, well, so certainly Australia is probably where Canada was a few years ago in terms of use, medicinal use, um, with practitioners and patients so just as a bit of a overview in australia now um it's limited but growing use um prescribed by practitioners through a special access scheme essentially i think uh the 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 physician has had to have exhausted all other methods and therapies um applies for this this um permission and paperwork is um, submitted etc and and then the patient can go to the pharmacist and get um some iteration of cbd plus or minus thc um so my first question is um you've done a lot of research and looked at the the indications and use and why people are 
are using CBD or, or trying to access CBD and THC. So first from a patient perspective, what are the, some of the, the main reasons um, why patients uh, are, are seeking to use these substances? Yeah. Um, well, I know just looking at the data from some of the uh, medical cannabis programs here in the States and and then uh, more recently comparing some of that to Canada and, and other places, um, certainly the most commonly reported reason for using medical cannabis is almost always pain. Um, that's extremely common. Um, other than that, it's often sleep and anxiety. Um, those, those three are, I would say certainly the most common, um, kind of, uh, more chronic situations, chronic conditions, um, that people are often, um, trying to treat with cannabinoids. And then there's sort of a, another sort of side to it, which is the more sort of acute disease states. Um, so like cancer, um, and, and that's a multifaceted, complicated thing. But um, some people are turning to cannabinoids for cancer um, to manage um, symptoms from, you know, radiation and chemotherapy. You know, maybe they um, don't have an appetite and they're losing weight and weak. And so they are trying to boost their appetite so that they can stomach food and try to keep their muscle mass up and, you know, try to give their body the best um you know, kind of fighting chance that it has to, to get through um, those more intensive therapies. And then other people are approaching cannabinoids because they literally want to cure their cancer with cannabis. And, and that is, that is a very, um, that's a tough nut to crack <laughs> because um, I think there's been a, uh, you know, there's, there's been a lot of sensationalized stories about um, cannabis and cancer. And it's, I think, given people this impression um, that they can just, you know, if they get a cancer diagnosis, that if they just take large amounts of cannabis extracts orally, um, or in the context of skin cancer or something topically, that it'll, um, you know, kill their cancer. And there's certainly very intriguing preclinical research, you know, showing how cannabinoids can influence different types of cancer cell types. But the reality is that, I mean, for one thing, cancer is not one thing. And even in the context of, let's say, breast cancer or leukemia, um, that's not even one thing. You know, breast cancer is not one thing. There are all sorts of forms, um, and causes. Um, so going back to this issue of oversimplification and, um, not necessarily, uh, appreciating the, the nuanced complexity of all of this, um, um, cancer is an extremely complicated thing and it's not one thing. And while it's true that, you know, maybe with skin cancer, applying topical cannabinoids, um, there is some evidence that it, um, you know, may uh, kill, you know, some of those those cancer cells. And there's certainly been anecdotal reports that have, have shown that. Um, but when you start getting into um, cancers of I internal cancers, cancers of, the, you know, different organs and tissues inside the body, um, that is a, a significantly trickier thing. And I unfortunately know quite a few clinicians now that, 
have watched, um, you know, patients try the approach of trying to cure their cancer with cannabis and it, it often doesn't work. Um, and unfortunately they, they pass away and there's some research coming out now that even in, in some cases, cannabis may, um, um, negatively affect, um, uh, life expectancy and that sort of thing. Um, and so, um, while a lot of people are turning to cannabis for cancer, that's, that's one where I, I feel really uncomfortable, um, because I, I worry that, um, people have a misunderstanding of what we actually know about cannabis and cancer and cannabinoids and cancer. And they have maybe a, you know, somewhat of a false hope, um, that it's, it's going to be the thing that, that works and they don't need chemotherapy or radiation. And, you know, they may possibly be hurting themselves, hurting their loved ones and, um, and that sort of thing. But going back to your main question, um, those are some of the main reasons that, that people tend to be turning to, to THC and CBD as some of the others, um, you know, for particularly for CBD, um, epilepsy, um, is becoming more and more common, especially as, um, epidiolex was approved in the United States in 2018 for treating, um, drug resistant forms of epilepsy in children. And so there's a good bit of clinical human clinical data on epilepsy. There's also some good human clinical data and there, there needs to be a lot more, but it at least exists for, um, using CBD for anxiety, um, and that sort of thing. So we're seeing more of that. Um, and then, um, the pain issue is, is multifaceted too, because you've got, um, people with all sorts of different types of pain that are turning to cannabis. And, um, so that can kind of get broken down too. like some people it's arthritic pain. Other times it's pain associated with like, um, multiple sclerosis or other, um, sort of neurodegenerative, uh, types of diseases. Um, um, so, um, yeah, it's, uh, there's kind of a, a wide umbrella there. Um, but I know in Oregon, I think about 50% of people that get a medical cannabis card report pain. Now, how much of that is real? Because there's also the phenomenon of um, people using pain as an easy way to get medical access to cannabis. Um, and if cannabis is not legal where they are, then they may just use that as, you know, because who doesn't have pain? Um, but, you know, certainly even accounting for that, um, I think it still would probably be the the most common legitimate reason. Yeah. So as I said, in Australia, the, um, there's essentially sort of three forms um, you may find medical cannabis in. So a, a THC sort of alone or dominant, uh, quote unquote mixed with THC and CBD, mm. or a CBD either isolate or certainly dominant form. Um, so it's, I suppose two parts of the question um, in your mind, how do you group like not that you're prescribing these, but like um, how do we, how'd you go about sort of organizing who would be better suited for what? And then um, secondly, what sort of doses, which I know is a, a big question as well, mm -hmm. um, do we see benefit with both THC and, and CBD? Yeah. Um, well, there's a little bit of. Um, peer-reviewed human clinical data that depending on what you're treating, you may have a sort of guidepost on dosaging and uh, formulations and that sort of thing. You know, like I mentioned, there's um, 
around Epidiolex, uh, which is a CBD isolate based product. Um, you know, there's a fair amount of, of human clinical data there for epilepsy and to understand the dosaging. Um, you know, generally, you know, for those sorts of situations, you're taking doses anywhere from two and a half or five to 15 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Um, for things, uh, there's a decent uh, review paper that I, I don't remember the name of, but uh, it was published within the past few years and it um, consolidated a lot of information around CBD dosing for other conditions. And um, it showed that for some things like anxiety, depression, um, lower doses of CBD seem to be able to be effective. On the THC side, um, this can get really complicated because um, THC can be therapeutically active at doses lower, low enough that you don't have a significant in intoxicating effect, uh, which would be anywhere from a quarter to two or three milligrams. Um, and that is really good for people that don't want to be intoxicated, um, that are looking for... Um, you know, that find that, that THC is more effective. Um, that can be particularly beneficial for things like nausea, um, as well as um, inflammation control and pain and that sort of thing. And then if you were to add CBD to that, then you could theoretically boost that THC concentration a little higher without getting into the realm of intoxication because the CBD can kind of antagonize the effects of THC a bit. And... Um, uh, you know, make that a little more manageable. Um, so there's a little bit to go off of there, but if you're, you know, there's some people that actually rely on the, uh, and I, I really don't, it's, it's kind of a shame to have to use the word intoxicating because that implies toxicity and phytocannabinoids are so very non-toxic, but, um, some people rely on the intoxicating uh, quality of THC as part of the therapeutic response, particularly in mental health conditions like PTSD. Um, also, um, THC is is fairly good at disrupting REM cycles and sleep, which uh, normally might not be a good thing for most people. But for someone with PTSD, that might be um, having night terrors, um, very invasive dreams. Um, that can actually make sleep more bearable because you can interrupt the dream recall process and that sort of thing. Um, and so in that case, you might would um, might would want higher doses or if uh, someone is um, finds that the the intoxicating qualities of, of cannabis is affecting their mood or behavior in a positive way, you know, then you might want doses that are five milligrams to 10 milligrams of THC. Uh, and that's, that's those doses that I'm quoting are more for, um, for lack of a better word, like a, like a naive user. Um, if you're, if it's someone that's using, uh, cannabis or THC chronically, then, uh, then those doses can, you know, be quite a bit more, um, you know, usually up to, uh, 10 to 20, 25, even somewhere up to 50 milligrams of THC sometimes uh, for some chronic users. And this is uh, what I'm talking about is oral ingestion. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and this is based on my experience within 
you know, talking to to doctors and understanding what they're doing and and the doses that they're they're using and everything. Some of this is published. Some of it's just what I've learned from being around uh, physicians that that are um, regularly working with patients. Um, beyond things like epilepsy and nausea and um, PTSD and some of those other things that I listed, uh, there's a kind of steep drop off in information that's available as far as peer reviewed, like reliable information about dosing. Um, so then it, it comes down to a lot of trial and error. And generally what physicians try to do is they're always hunting for that minimum effective dose. And so they'll usually start if they're working with THC, then they'll start at sometimes even a half a milligram or, or one milligram and then go to two milligrams, then four, you know, and just kind of slowly titrate up until they get a therapeutic response without any unwanted side effects. um, Or if, they don't ever find that, then move to something else, a different type of formulation, get CBD involved or whatever they want to do. But it is still very much a, um, you know, trial and error process and, and trying to um, titrate slowly and, and observe and, um, you know, just try to keep the patient safe while they uh, try to figure out what works for them. And then, you know, nowadays we're fortunate enough that, you know, there are physicians out there that have been doing some of this work for well over a decade or more and have some very insightful information to share, um, usually at conferences and things where they can, you know, um, explain what they've seen, some of the patterns of dosing and everything that they're seeing. And, and we're, we're seeing a, a more mature kind of data set come out of all of that, but it's still very, very early and, and very premature. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so did you mention CBD doses? Yeah, so CBD doses. Um, well, I think more- I did for epilepsy, the, uh, the um, anywhere from two and a half to five to 15 milligrams per kilogram of body weight for epilepsy. Uh, for anxiety, uh, some of the human studies that have been done on that have shown uh, and this, this is kind of funny, very, very different results. There's one study that shows that like uh, a 300 milligram dose uh, was effective. And there's another study that showed that as low as um, like 10 milligrams or 15 milligrams or something was effective. And that um, may be related to the formulation and may be related to whether isolated CBD is used versus, um, you know, a quote unquote kind of broad spectrum cannabis extract, a CBD rich extract. Um, and some of that still has to be teased out. But um, a lot of the anxiety research with CBD seems to show that um, lower doses uh, can be much more effective compared to treating something like epilepsy. Um, beyond that, it's uh, there's, there's a lot of gaps in, in um, kind of reliable information beyond those conditions. Thank you. All right. So um, perhaps final question. You've been so generous with your time. Um, more looking to the future. You said there's gaps. Where, um, where do you see the, the industry or the science or the clinical practice going? Um, or what would you like to see to better understand or find the 
clear clinical utility uh, or better, you know, better focus of CBD and, and medicinal cannabis in yeah. clinical focus. Well, one thing that's definitely on my mind, especially given my background working, you know, on the analytical chemistry side of a lot of this for so long is um, I really want to see better analytical methods employed um, and standardized across labs. Um you know, like I mentioned in the United States, if you take a cannabis product to even one of the best commercial cannabis testing labs in the country, you're still primarily going to get, you know, maybe 15 cannabinoids uh, characterized and maybe 30 or 40 uh, terpenes at best. And that's that's at best. Um, a lot of them, especially labs that are operating in states that have not... Um, um, haven't had cannabis programs going for very long that are a little more new to all of this. I mean, usually you're lucky if you get six or seven cannabinoids characterized and maybe 10 to 15 terpenes. Um, there are also some issues around uh, like terpene testing. There are ways, <laughs> there are very easy ways to screw up terpene testing. Um, and the level of um, oversight and quality management of analytical labs is not very good, at least not here in the United States. Um, labs certainly are usually required to get accredited and that sort of thing. But um, because this is also new, a lot of accreditors don't really understand how to wrap their heads around some of what labs are doing. So um, one thing I want to see is just better analytical technologies and methods applied to uh, the characterization of these products, because without that data, it's very challenging to um, understand, uh, you know, what might be going on in a particular formulation, why something works when something else didn't work. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we may be chasing down uh, terpenes um, because we didn't look closely enough at cannabinoids in the first place. And so, you know, that kind of problem really needs to um, be addressed. Our differences in effects that we're seeing, is that really uh, coming about because of, of terpenes? Or are is it related to minor cannabinoids that we just don't have reference standards for and can't measure very well? So, um, you know, I'm very encouraged to see the work of like uh, Dady Miri's lab that these methodologies they've employed to um, very quickly uh, characterize cannabis products to a level that is really unheard of in most other places. And then beyond that, they have a very um, interesting connection between hospitals and practitioners and patients and the analytical labs and preclinical research um, kind of focused labs. Uh, so there's a lot of good information sharing in real time. And I'd like to see more of that pretty much everywhere that, that um, you know, medical cannabis shows itself. We ought to have better characterization of products, better communication between the analytical labs and the medical practitioners, better science communication about cannabis and cannabinoids and all these things to the patients. Um, and all of that information needs to be uh, kind of, streamlined and shared between each other so that we can improve things and understand things uh, much more quickly in a way that is very relevant to patients. Um, because that's really what this is all about is trying to figure out how to 
how to help people and and give people tools to to better their lives, whatever they're they're dealing with. Um, mm-hmm. So, on sort of the technical side, I guess that's something I I really want to see improvements to. Um, kind of thinking more um, broadly and coming around to the endocannabinoid dome again. Um, I'm very interested to see more research around um, how uh, diet is and and metabolism and and um, and those sorts of dynamics are influencing um, the endocannabinoid dome. And uh, Dr. DeMarzo is doing some interesting research right now, trying to understand the crosstalk between the gut microbiome and the endocannabinoid dome. I'm very, very interested to see that. I think that um, where the where cannabinoid science is headed is is very much, um, you know, cannabis will always be an important part, but the science is really leaving cannabis uh, um, and going into a lot of other very, very interesting directions. And I think that um, what we're going to see over time is that as our tools to measure the endocannabinoid system improve and as our understanding on how, um, you know, the role that fatty acids play in the endocannabinoid system and these endocannabinoid congeners and everything, I think we'll um, develop uh, better insights into how we can just manipulate the endocannabinoid dome in a positive manner through diet and exercise and really basic things like that. Additionally, for me personally, something that I'm really starting to focus on is trying to take lessons we've learned from cannabis and cannabinoid science research and start to um, to start to look at other plants and their chemical constituents in a different way. Uh, something I talk about a lot now is that the the concept of what a cannabinoid is is evolving, and uh, you know the concept stems you know, it comes from cannabis, you know, we, we call things cannabinoids because we, you know, we're looking for the active constituents of cannabis and, you know, and we call things cannabinoid receptors because those active constituents of cannabis influence those receptors. But I think, um, as time plays out, our understanding of what it means to be a cannabinoid or cannabinoid receptor, I think is going to evolve quite a bit. And I think it will encompass a lot more, um, and we'll include things that we have already studied that we'll kind of see in a, a different light. I'm very interested to um, spend some time um, looking for cannabinoid-like compounds in other plants, as well as fungi um, and even animals. But I'm, I'm really primarily focused on on plants and, and fungi, but trying to understand, um, you know, essentially, how is nature using... Um, these lipid molecules um, to do very complex things, um, you know, is sort of a high level. I'm, I'm very fascinated with that. And I think that, um, I mean, already we're starting to see reports of plants that have um, very similar uh, compounds in them. They're very similar to things like anandamide and 2-AG. Um, and I think as we start to poke around more and we look for things, um, other fatty acid, uh, particularly arachidonic acid um, derivatives, I think we're going to find even more interesting compounds. And I think it's going to change the way we, we think about um, things like eicosanoids and, and it'll 
just sort of trickle out and, and affect a lot of things from medical science to um, even botany and, and plant pathology, um, all sorts of things like that. Um, so I'm, I'm very fascinated to just, um, I don't know, just to see how all of this past hundred years of cannabinoid research, how it's going to affect the, you know, the perceptual lens that researchers um, kind of see uh, biochemistry through. I think it's, it's, going to really um cause some really exciting it's going to lead to some really exciting discoveries as well as some really exciting um i think new narratives about things that we've already studied uh quite a lot that we thought we understood very well but turns out there's a whole other side to things that we had we had missed um and uh i guess the last thing i'm really excited about is to see how the endocannabinoid dome is influencing um the human genome and like I mentioned before, the uh, metabolome and the proteome, um, one thing I didn't touch on earlier, but there's some research that indicates that anandamide has epigenetic effects, that it affects the methylation of DNA. Um, CBD has been shown to do this as well directly, um, which is interesting because CBD also influences the activity of anandamide. So theoretically, CBD may be able to affect methylation of DNA both directly and indirectly. Um, but that's another one of those things that that's easy to study and, and look at outside of a, a human organism. It's a much more complicated thing to understand what's, what's going on um, in a more practical sense. But um, just the idea that, you know, these, these compounds are um, affecting uh, what parts of our genetic code are sort of being turned on and off and, and influencing those proteins i mean you can you can see how this is all connected because if the endocannabinoid dome is affecting the genome then it's affecting the proteome and which affects the metabolome you know it's it's all interconnected and so just understanding those connections better on a more practical way and understanding how we can use that understanding of those connections to um, influence health and more possibly um more direct ways to influence very direct, uh, very specific diseases. And that sort of thing I think is going to be, um, um, a very fascinating thing that we, we, we may not even get to in my lifetime, but, um, you know, certainly I hope in the next 20, 30, 40 years, um, that narrative starts to come together. Amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's brilliant. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's like we're just sort of scratching the surface and I do like the idea that, yeah, there's probably more to it than just cannabis, cannabis, even though, you know, it's been shown to be helpful in many people, but perhaps maybe we'll look back in a couple of decades and think we're well, playing with pretty crude tools with um, medical cannabis. Yeah, that's right. So um, if anyone listening wants to learn more about sort of curious about cannabis as a whole, um, we have a website, it's uh, cacpodcast.com. Um, and on that website, you can pretty much learn about everything um, that we're doing, both with the podcast as well as the book. Um, and we're also working on, um, you know, when I mentioned at the very beginning that I used to teach workshops and stuff, we're trying to relaunch those workshops. It's been challenging because we were going to relaunch them as they originally existed in person. Um, we were going to do that right around April of this year. But then, of course, um, as, as COVID um, made itself known, that just totally changed everything and kind of had to rebuild uh, everything to try to be more virtual friendly. 
So we're trying to um, relaunch those um, early next year, probably just in time for vaccines to come around and then we'll have to restructure it again. Um, but <laughs> it just keeps us on our toes. Um, so there's also information about events and stuff like that. Um, and you can find the Curious About Cannabis book on uh, the CACpodcast.com website, or you can usually find it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, and that sort of thing too. And um, and then there's also um, sort of my broader science education company because I do, um, believe it or not, I do a lot more other stuff than, than cannabis, even though I talk, talk about it so much. But um, I have a company called Natural Learning Enterprises, which is um, my science education company that Curious About Cannabis is housed under. But we're, we're working on a um, psychedelics project right now because Oregon just legalized the medical use of psilocybin. Um, so um, a lot of the stuff that we've done with Curious About Cannabis, we're kind of translating over to a, a um, show, and it'll probably be a book as well, called Serious About Psychedelics. And um, there's other things too. We have a program all about, um, you know, mycology for kids, teach people about, um, you know, the critical ecological functions of fungi. We have a um, sort of platform all about um, wildlife friendly gardening and how that can influence biodiversity loss, all sorts of science related um, education stuff there. So if anyone wants to check out Natural Learning Enterprises, that's naturaledu.com. That sounds like a fantastic resource. I'm really looking forward to looking into that. I also wouldn't mind checking in with in the future on psychedelics. That's an area on my interest list, so I'd love to get back to you on that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's something I'm I'm very excited to um, you know have the opportunity, like I have with the Curious About Cannabis podcast, to chase down some researchers I've been wanting to talk to for a long time and have the excuse to pick their brains for a little while um, and share that with everybody um, and. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about <laughs> what cannabis is sort of setting up for the future of, of medical science, uh, psychedelics is a whole other beast unto itself. Um, it's very, very fascinating. Um, and it's going to, I think, really um, change a lot of things in relation to um, mental health. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks for your time, James. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.